Hi, this is Steve O'Mooney, and you're listening to another production of the 4i Radio Network at 4iRadio.com. Hey there, Eric here from Socially Awkward Studios, and this 4i Radio presentation is being proudly brought to you by Raven Designs, illustration and design that fit your personality. For samples and inquiries, visit ravencruise.com. Starfleet Escape Podcast. Prepare for launch. In three, two, one. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, where we escape into the Star Trek universe. This is episode number 52 and is being recorded on January 9th, 2015. Today's topic, a look back on Star Trek Voyager. I'm Eric. And I'm Aaron. This episode is brought to you by Revenge Lover, illustration and design that fit your personality. For samples and inquiries, visit revengelover.com. Hey, Aaron. Hi, Eric. How are you this week? I am in a frigid wasteland known as Chicago, much like Voyager's episode, Timeless. (laughs) Is that the one when they crash? (laughs) Into a frozen planet. I feel like I'm on that planet right now. I see. It's it's so bitterly cold and snowy and crap. Yeah, Boston hasn't had it quite as hard as you guys. But we did have wind chill warnings yesterday, and they canceled schools because of oh, yeah. how, how cold it was. And we just had a uh, dusting of snow today. So it's been... I, I feel you. I feel yeah. you. Well, I, I'm glad you're sharing a little bit of the pain, but yeah. I feel like we're in the Arctic right now, at least Chicago. It's it's bad. But at least but, I'm inside and... Yeah, inside and, and warm, and I hate when I have to go out. And, <laughs> and you have that Endorian hat that you can throw on. I do, I do. So I can stay warm. Mm-hmm. Well, Andorians survive, and their whole planet is a frozen moon. So. That's true. Very true. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's get into the news a little bit. Alrighty. First, Star Trek III's new director will be Justin Lin, who also directed Fast and Furious 6. What do you think about this? I, don't, I didn't see Fast and Furious 6. I'm not a huge fan of the Fast and Furious franchise. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've seen any of his work before, but I'm I'm cool with it as long as it comes out and is a good movie. I'm so skeptical with this because um, he did direct four of the Fast and Furious films, mm. which did gross 1.9 billion in worldwide box office. So I mean, he knows what he's doing as a director, mm-hmm. but I'm just afraid that all this like Fast and Furious mindset mm-hmm. is going to be dumped into Star Trek. Mm. So like fast-paced action that we get at the same as the other movies, and if this is potentially going to be the last that Bad Robot does, and there's been talk of that, like they're only meant to do a trilogy and maybe Paramount wants to go in another direction. If they do that, I want them to go out on a high note. I don't want another shoot 'em up yeehaw Star Trek, you know? And with this director, 
I, I feel like we're going to get that. And, you know, maybe we'll have neon lights on the Enterprise or something and, and nitrous. <laughs> I, well, I just go fast enough. Right, right. So, I don't know. I'm very indifferent about it. I just, it's so early in the process right now, which is scary because if it's going to come out next year, which leads into our next news item, Paramount Pictures set the release date of Star Trek 13. Uh, to July 8th, 2016. So they have a year and a half to get this movie out. And I'm afraid that's not going to be enough time with all the effects. Right. And I don't even know if they nailed down a script yet or what the final script treatment is going to be. Right. And, I mean, they would have to start filming now, especially since all the Star Trek movies are very effects-laden. You almost need a year just for the effects. Right. So I'm very worried that this is going to be rushed, mm-hmm. uh, but it will be in time for the 50th anniversary. Right. And that's another thing that I'm worried about, is if we're having a Star Trek movie on the 50th anniversary, I want a movie that's going to celebrate the anniversary. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm worried about the fast-paced action shoot 'em up you know, that we might get from this director, because that's not a celebration of what Star Trek is about. Right. I want, it's more like the I want Jonathan train to the stars. Yeah, exactly. It's not... <laughs> it's a wagon train to the stars, not a fuel-injected V6 streetcar to the stars. Right, right. And like you were saying, Jonathan Frakes, we had that uh, campaign on Twitter to uh, bring in Riker. It's unfortunate that didn't happen. Right. He's directed uh, two of the movies, two of the, well, one of them being one of the most successful Star Trek movies before the J.J. movies came out. Mm -hmm. And he's directed several episodes of Star Trek. And he's an accomplished director on other movies and TV shows. So, to me, if you bring someone like that who knows Star Trek, uh, even though he's working in this alternate universe, I would I would feel so much better if this movie was in the hands of Jonathan Frakes than Justin Fast and Furious Lynn, you know? Right. Well, hopefully, it's a good movie. It'll be good. Uh, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that the script will be good, and it doesn't really matter who the director is, is what I'm hoping. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I want Roberto Orsi, you know, whatever script treatment he had, or... Because mm-hmm. now he's just executive producing. He's not even, he's not directing, or any of that. So, yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just very cautious about this movie, and all the, since it's the 13th movie, it seems it's stricken with a little bad luck. At least right. so far in the process. It's just, it's very weird. And it's tradition for odd number Star Trek movies to be bad. Right. And this being not only an odd number, but the 13th. Yeah, and, ooh, I I don't want that combination. I don't want this J.J. universe to go out on a bad note. Mm-hmm. Because it does get a lot of criticism from fans, but on the same token, it's bringing in a lot of new fans who go out and discover the other shows and movies. So, I don't know. I don't want to be one of those, like, old-school Trekkies that's like, 
Oh, goddamn JJ, you know. Long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The original series are nothing. Yeah. Uh, oh well, I mean. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, hopefully, it's like like we said, a good story, and it's true to the core values of Star Trek. That's all I want for a movie that's going to be released on the 50th anniversary. That's all I want. Yeah. In like uh, 50 years. I know it's insane. Yeah, that means my dad was uh, my dad was sixteen when it came out. Oh wow! Yeah, and he's been a Trekkie since you know it came out. So it's pretty cool. So I don't know if you saw the last Simpsons episode. I did not. So it it was riddled with uh, a few Star Trek references, but at the end of the episode, they had. It was like the original series and credits, where they have the still photos. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, and so, so it was a parody of that? Right. So they had, like, Marge Simpson as... it was. She was blue, but it was she was meant to be an Orion. Oh, uh, okay. They had someone, like... Uh, they had... It was basically Sulu with uh, the fencing... Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, a few other shots. They had Bart Simpson in a turbo lift, uh, not a turbo lift, a um, a Jeffrey's tube. Oh, like Scotty. Like Scotty. They had the cat. <laughs> you know the crazy cat lady. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it was, was like she the salt vampire. No, but you remember <laughs> Troubles with Tribbles? Yeah. Where, um, they open up the the top there, and the tribbles fall out. Cats was were it? Falling cats out. were falling. Out? <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, wait, did the episode have anything to do with Star Trek? Was It was space-related. Okay. Well, it's on Hulu. I'm going to watch it. Yeah, I watched it on Hulu. Recording. Okay. Uh, was it, it was, funny? It was funny. I watched it to go to bed, uh, so I was kind of like <laughs> drifting in and out. Uh, but it, it felt like a Halloween episode. Interesting. Because um, it involved the aliens that are usually seen in their Halloween episodes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Cool. We'll have to check it out. Uh, Next, Alice Eve, who played Dr. Carol Marcus in Star Trek Into Darkness, is married now to Alex Kelper-Smith on New Year's Day. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I had a chance. Damn. Uh, Well... Good for her, good for her. Good for her. Good for her. <laughs> yeah. Not not good for the rest of us. Good, but for, good her for her and Alex. Alex, yes. you lucky man. Uh, next, Zoe Saldana and husband Marco Perego announced that they have had twins, and their names are Cy and Bowie. Congratulations uh, there. Which is... It's those are okay names. At least it's not like Apple or West, <laughs> right. or Blue Ivy, or something weird. Something oh, weird. and this isn't in the show notes, but in another uh, baby type announcement, there is a Cumber Baby on the way. Oh right, yes. So, Benedict Cumberbatch and his fiance Sophie Hunter are expecting a baby. No, oh, congratulations There's to them. So many Star Trek babies mm. happening. Indeed. So, mazel tov to them. 
Yeah. I, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I don't know either, but I'll go with that. <laughs> Moving on to the Would You Buy It section of the show. In our last episode, we had our yearly... Um, it's basically a yearly Would You Buy It show. <laughs> it um, is. <laughs> it's our um, gift guide, holiday gift guide episode. Mm-hmm. So we're going to ease into it with this product for this year. Okay. So, Eric, would you buy this product? Um, yes and no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about mm-hmm. it. How about you? Likewise. All right, and what we're talking about is the original series paper clips. So for, <laughs> so for $20, you can get a set of Star Trek paper clips, uh, 40 clips broken down into 20 NCC-1701 clips and 20 Delta Shield clips. Um, I, I do have to admit... Mm-hmm. This is very creative. Yeah. This, right. this is a very creative thing. Mm-hmm. But for $20, that's essentially 50 cents a clip. Mm. And I don't know. Like, I think these would be too cool to use. Right. Well, I, I, I definitely wouldn't use them, like, in an office setting because they'll be gone before you know it. Right. People will just take them. People will just take them. Right. People might not know Star Trek, and they're like, oh, what's this? Throw it away. Right. So, or they'll play with them and, like, bend them out of shape. You're like, no. No, my paperclip. So I think the price <laughs> is crazy. Um, right. It's it's a creative idea. I would get them maybe for home use. Mm-hmm. But then again, who files anymore? Like, everything's on computer. <laughs> right. Uh, these will be available the second quarter of 2015 from Icon Heroes. Right. So that will that'll be available. Right. I, I, I like the Delta Shield ones. I think they're pretty cool. Those are very cool. I, I like the Enterprise one, too. Again, I, I like the bendy shape and how they did that. I think it's very unique. Very, very cool. Just not that worth it to me. <laughs> right. So if if you think they brought the price point down to $10 for 40 clips? I think that might work, yeah. yeah. Why not? I would get it then. I just, I don't think I'd use it in a huge office setting. Right. So I wouldn't want to lose these. <laughs> you might find this on Clarence uh, <laughs> for pretty cheap in the, Towards the end corner of, this. of 2015. <laughs> yes. So I don't know where... They'd probably be in office supply stores, I'm guessing? Um, possibly. I'm, I'm not sure exactly uh, where yeah, I don't know. find this. Uh, maybe art supply stores? Yeah, or maybe this Icon Heroes has a website you can order from. Oh, I'm yeah. sure... I'm sure the StarTrek.com website will have it. Right, right. So, yeah. Well, moving on... Today we are taking a look back on Star Trek Voyager. 2015, specifically January 16th, 2015, makes it the 20th anniversary of the show. I feel incredibly old. (laughs) (laughs) You remember where you were 20 years ago? Actually, I do. 
Um, I remember watching the first episode of Star Trek Voyager. Mm-hmm. I have fond memories of the show. Star Trek Voyager was definitely the one that I tuned into weekly, mm-hmm. and I made it a purpose to tune in weekly. Like, I made it my mission, too. Because mm-hmm. the next generation, I was still very much a kid during that whole run. Right. So while I may have seen the episodes in reruns, I know I didn't see all of those during their first run. I know I saw the premiere when I was five, because I have a very vivid memory of that. But Voyager was the one, I mean, you know, I I was in um, middle school, and that, yeah, I was in middle school at the time, so I was in mm-hmm. eighth grade. This was just before high school. And most of this series took place during my high school years. Okay. So I, yeah, I remember every Wednesday... It originally started on a Monday. I remember that. It was Mondays for a while, and then they switched it to Wednesday nights, mm-hmm. and Wednesdays kind of became the final home for, for Voyager on UPN. Right. But what's unique about Voyager was this was a Star Trek series that launched a network. Mm-hmm. It launched the UPN network, uh, which stood for the United Paramount Network, but... That was a huge deal back in the day. Like, right. they were really promoting this to be the channel that you tune into. They were trying to be in the top four after CBS and um, NBC and ABC. Right. It, it was definitely a bold move. And I remember the premieres or the, the promos that they had leading up to Voyager, and it was like... Uh, new. I, I don't remember all of it, but I remember there's a very epic feeling, and right. um, the ship would fly by, and it would say Voyager coming in January, and it was very cool. Yeah, no, it was, it was it was cool. I don't have as a fond memory of Star Trek Voyager as you do. Right. Uh, I was. I'm slightly younger than you. Mm-hmm. I was in. Let's see. This was '95. I was still in elementary school. I was in fifth grade when this premiered. Yeah. Um, and I remember I remember watching the premiere of DS9 in 93 mm-hmm. more than watching the premiere of Voyager in 95. Oh, okay. But I, re- I know I watched it. Mm-hmm. And I remember the promotional promotions for it, like the TV guides that were coming out for it. Oh, yeah. The yeah. covers. And there was a look behind the scenes before the series yep. aired with uh, Robert Picardo. Yeah, I remember that, that too. Went over the different aspects of the ship, and I remember looking at the looking up diagrams of the ship before it came out. I was like, "Oh, that's that's cool. That's cool." <laughs> yeah, this was definitely when the internet was in its early stages, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, Voyager was very cool. I remember taping every single episode on VHS. Mm. Like, so I had a VCR, and when I knew I wasn't going to be home when it aired, I would set the automatic timer on the VHS. Do you, you want to explain to our younger viewers what a VCR is? Jesus. <laughs> a VCR is a video cassette recorder, and it was basically this, like, 8-inch black rectangle mm-hmm. with, uh, think of it just as a big cassette player, but Would for you your like TV. Would you like playing cassettes to <laughs> younger 
<laughs> listeners. <laughs> Anyways, yes, we had a VCR. Oh, man, player. the pace of technology, Eric, in the last 20 years. It's insane. It's crazy. I mean, when you've got pocket-sized computers... Mm-hmm. Like Star Trek in our pockets, we've got these fancy iPhones and the Galaxy Twos, and they're even named things like Galaxy and yeah, right, yeah. Who I, back then, if you told me twenty years ago, I'd have a mobile device, something like a pad from Star Trek mm-hmm. that I could talk to friends around the world, I would think you're crazy. Like mm-hmm. you're living in that future crazy time. Right, but it's happening. It is. Um, so yes, the Voyager spanned in the Star Trek universe the years twenty three seventy one to twenty three seventy eight, and it was the first series to feature a female captain. Right, we've seen female captains, but this was the first series to deal with a, female a captain, captain lead. Yeah, a female captain lead. And the first, the first few seasons of Voyager overlapped with the run of Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. I think the first five. Yeah, the first five. And yeah, though, so that time was a great time for Star Trek. You had two TV series on the air. Uh, you had great movies because First Contact came out in '96. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Insurrection was, what, 98? Right, yep. Yeah. Yep. So we had some great movies, and towards the end of Voyager's run, after Voyager uh, ended the summer of 2001, that was when Nemesis came out. So it was a very exciting time for Star Trek fans, Wait, especially uh, having... It uh, came out in December. Yeah, December, that's right. Yeah, right. But still... It was a great time for Star Trek fans. Mm-hmm. You know, two series on the air at once. Uh, that was pretty cool. Right. Yeah. Of course, uh, Deep Space Nine was in syndication. So I remember, right. at least in my affiliate, seeing Deep Space Nine on WGN. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, UPN was the home of Voyager. So there was a time where I would watch Deep Space Nine, which aired on Saturdays for me. Right. And, yeah, Voyager on, on Wednesdays. It was a great time to be a Star Trek fan. No, definitely. Definitely. So, uh, first we're going to take a look at the mission of Voyager. Mm-hmm. Um, the, originally, Voyager was fresh out of the space dock, uh, and they were tasked to find a Maquis ship that was in the Badlands. And originally... Uh, the reason Voyager was picked for this was because Tuvok was a double agent. He was a spy for the Maquis. He infiltrated the Maquis, became a part of Chakotay's crew, and it was time for them to bring him in, and Janeway was a trusted friend of Tuvok, and I think that's why she got this mission. Um, She recruited uh, a former Maquis, Tom Paris, Mm-hmm. Uh, to help track down uh, Chakotay's ship in the Badlands. And they end up getting both the Maquis ship and Voyager got flung into the Delta Quadrant by being known as the Caretaker. And towards the end of Caretaker, the two crews managed to start working together. 
And their mission is basically a 75-year journey to get back home. But in the meantime, carrying out the ideals of Starfleet, of exploration, right. and, you know, peace. Uh, which <clears throat> I always thought that premise was very interesting because, um, to me, it gave it a very original series feel because the original series, they were on this five-year mission going into unexplored areas of space, and now Voyager has this whole quadrant where no one from the Alpha Quadrant has been. Right. And they have this amazing opportunity. So what did you think of their mission? Or the circumstances that got them to where they were? Right. I really didn't like the premiere episode, Caretaker. The, um, I, I, I will say the first season is a little rough. Yeah. I think that they could have had a better premiere episode. Mm-hmm. Now, have you done any kind of Voyager rewatch? It's been a while since I've watched any real full episode of Star Trek Voyager. The last time I think the last episode was Two Vix, probably. Okay. That I watched, um, and during our when this podcast launched, I watched The Caretaker as well mm. as the other um, premiere episodes from all the other series. Right. And we've watched uh, Endgame together. Right, that's true. Uh, so those are the <laughs> only episodes <laughs> I've watched in recent memory. Would I, I know we're kind of getting a little bit off topic, but would you be willing to rewatch Voyager with a new perspective, or you um, still hate it? See, I, <laughs> I don't hate it. <laughs> I did like you, every Wednesday, watch mm-hmm. uh, Star Trek Voyager. So I, oh. I did watch every episode. Okay. It just, coming from the next generation, Yeah. it just didn't, it was missing something. I don't know what it was. Mm. I don't um, know if it was because they were isolated, away from mm-hmm. the Federation. Which in the later seasons, they started to resolve that. With right. um, being connected to Starfleet with communications and mm-hmm. towards the end of the series actually getting missions from Starfleet to investigate certain things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Voyager, I mean, it was definitely different. They were on their own. But part of me really liked that aspect, though, because it wasn't the same thing that we got before. Right. Um, Deep right. Space Nine tried to change that by having a space station. Mm-hmm. And I think for Voyager being another spaceship series, I thought it was a good idea to have them isolated because mm-hmm. it brought up all these new problems. They had oh, to right, figure right. things out on their own. They, weren't, they couldn't rely on Starfleet to send backup. Uh, they had a lot of things that they had to deal with. Mm-hmm. So for that, I give the series credit um, for trying something new. Oh yeah, it was it was definitely unlike any other series that we've seen. Yeah. Personally and Voyager more had more so had a uh, family aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um but so did Next Generation towards the end. Right. Like there was that sense of family. Um is that do you think that's where you feel a little off with Voyager like it wasn't the same sense of family or do you think Voyager was trying to 
replicate that sense of family that Next Generation had? Uh, possibly. Uh, it might. It might have just been the dynamic between the characters mm. uh, that just didn't work for me. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, okay. I'm not sure what it was. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not making this like a Voyager <laughs> grilling episode, yeah, but. Yeah, I mean, it, Voyager had a lot of things. I mean, it had a mixed crew of Federation and Marquis. Yes. Which, you know, is crazy if you think about that they're able to have them work together. And I think uh, a lot of people's criticism was that there wasn't... Well, there was episodes that were dealing with conflict right. between right. Uh, the crews. That some people thought there wasn't enough of that. Mm-hmm. That they were too easily integrated early on. Right. And they did address it a few times, especially the um, the rivalry between Chakotay and Tom Paris. Mm-hmm. Like, they really butted heads the first few seasons right. of Voyager. Well, let's, let's talk about the ship okay. itself. Yeah, sure. So Voyager was an intrepid-class vessel... Mm-hmm. Uh, which was designated as a small, multi-purpose science ship. It only had 15 decks. Mm-hmm. Which is smaller than the original Enterprise. Right. But in terms of, like, length, it was comparable. It right. was comparable right. to uh, the Enterprise. It was just more squat. And right, right. Definitely for... It was missing edits- a neck. Yeah, exactly. It was more streamlined. Right. Uh, what did you think about the design of Voyager? I actually did not like the design of Voyager. Oh, really? I, that might be one of the things I didn't like the most. Was <laughs> the ship? Voyager, yeah. I didn't like... Oh, the ornament. I've got it. I've yes. got the ornament. I still have mine on the tree. I haven't taken my tree down yet. <laughs> <laughs> It's January 9th. No, that's cool. Whatever whatever works for you, man. Right. <laughs> Christmas all year. It'll come down. It'll come down. <laughs> yeah, when uh when Ashley gets back. <laughs> that's when they'll come down. But yeah. So I've actually I do have the Voyager ornament right here. So I'm I'm holding the actual ship. Um to me, this was actually one of my favorite designs. Mm. I really like the evolution that Voyager had in terms of the lineage of starships. Mm-hmm. So I like the more streamlined look. It it made the ship look fast, even standing still or going at impulse. So when there were shots in the series where it like turned and warped off, I thought that was so cool. It it's definitely one of my favorite designs. I, I really like the Voyager. See, I like the the uh, ventral view looking down on the ship. Uh huh. It's just the side view as something about it. I I was never a fan of that kind of squashed uh, oh, design. Yeah. Even with uh, the Sovereign class starship, I didn't like how it. Oh really? Just. It squashed everything? Yeah, how it just blends into the uh, secondary hull. Uh, Does that mean you're not a fan of the uh, Equinox and the Nova-class starship? Right, yeah. Is that another problem? Right. Okay. Yeah. So you basically want, like, boom, define saucer, boom, define engineering section. Right. You like the neck. I do. It, it doesn't have to be 
a like large separation between them. Right. I just would prefer something to indicate the connection between the yeah. primary and the secondary. Now, did you see the designs for Voyager when it was going through its design phase? Because at some mm-hmm. point, it did have a neck. I saw a early foam... Um, yeah, the foam mock-up. Yeah. And it had the underslung nacelles. Right, like the runabout yeah. kind of. Um, I didn't like that design either, Okay, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> uh, I know they were trying to go with something different, which I right. appreciate. Because it it's nothing like ships from the next generation. Right. So another design aspect of, of the ship is the variable geometry pylons... Yes, uh, which are which hold the nacelles of mm-hmm. the ship. So the goal of these pylons are to make the warp field more efficient and to lessen its damage to subspace. Which deals with a problem that came up in the next generation. Mm-hmm. Right. So another thing I didn't like about Voyager, okay, design uh, in regards to the pylons, I didn't like them in their lowered position. Oh, so so this position right here. Right, right. I thought it was okay, but it does break a rule that Roddenberry, kind of like a loose design rule for starships, where the nacelles have to be in line of sight of each other. Mm-hmm. And with the down position, the hole blocks that line of sight between the two nacelles. Mm-hmm. So, when they're up, of course, they can see each other. And maybe maybe that was part of the the pylon, so it would only be up during warp. Right. So, when it's in impulse, it's okay for them to be down like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, is that... That's one of the things you don't like. Right. Is when it's down. Right. Okay. But when they're up, it, it makes the ship look faster, too. Because it, it does. I... I can deal with the ship <laughs> if the pylons are in the up position. I just like it better. It's just that's how I've always seen a Federation starship. Uh, I lie. The Miranda has them lower. Yeah. Uh, Reliant have them lower. Um, but they're not, like, flat. You know what I mean? Right. There's, there's always an angle to it. Right. I, I Some kind of angle. I need that. Yeah. Like, like, you 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 have to admit it was it's it was really cool whenever they did go to warp and those went. Oh no! It's was, cool when they fold up, uh, go up. Yeah. I feel like that must take time. Like if there was an emergency situation. No, that's BS. Those could go up really fast because there's been no, times no. they've had. No, there's been times when they've had to run away from the board and it just goes, and they're maybe, off. Maybe. <laughs> I just feel like. What if what if something happened to the pylons and they couldn't go up? Could they still go to warp if they're not in their up position? I would say yes, but it defeats the purpose of being more efficient. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I speculate that, yes, they can still go to warp if they're functioning, if the actual nacelles are still functioning, mm-hmm. but the pylons aren't up. I still feel that they can go to warp. Mm. Uh, because basically the reason that they had that variable geometry pylon 
And I'll say another thing. Mm-hmm. I think the only reason that we see Voyager with this is because the Intrepid class was basically the test bed for more efficient warp fields. Because later ships, after Voyager was made, we didn't see that again. But they were still supposedly efficient. Like, a uh, ship introduced in Voyager was the Prometheus class, mm-hmm. where that had four nacelles, but the pylons were more streamlined, mm-hmm. and that streamlined nacelle structure was also seen on the Enterprise-E, the Sovereign class, right. which was made after Voyager. Right. So, and you could tell in the shape of both those ships and the cells too, like, they were, the Bussard collectors were more pointy, mm-hmm. and it was more triangular and streamlined. Right. So that could be a new warp field geometry that they came up with after the Intrepid class, or all the data that they learned from the Intrepid class as a whole. Right. So, yeah. And another thing that kind of ties in that the Intrepid class was a testbed for new technology was because of all the new technology that Voyager had. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had tri-cobalt torpedoes, which were extremely high-yield weapons capable of producing disruptions or even ruptures in subspace. Um, Voyager did not have an arsenal of these. They only had a few on board that they used against the caretaker array. Mm -hmm. And I think they used them one other time. But I think that was kind of like the worst-case scenario if they had to destroy this Maquis ship. I think they were only fitted with those torpedoes for that initial mission. Uh, Possibly, because it definitely is outside of their main mission of scientific exploration. Right, yeah. Is, uh, I mean, the Voyager is definitely not a battleship. No, uh, they handled pretty well. Yeah, they were they were seen in the Deep Space Nine episode "Blaze of Glory." The so, tricobalt. The tricobalt device. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it seems like a more destructive version of a photon torpedo. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I we know it's not you know typical arsenal for Starfleet. Right. Possibly because it's also dangerous to transport as well. Right. Um, next, which was a technology that I think is mentioned to be in other ships past the Intrepid uh, class, was the um, bioneural circuitry. Mm. So it was the circuitry that was kind of immersed in this biogel fluid. And they basically looked like IV bags with the, you know, the organic circuitry inside and ports on either end that could plug into the system. Mm -hmm. And the purpose behind that was if they're using organic circuitry, possibly it's faster to transmit data, Mm -hmm. kind of like the human brain. Right. There is some weakness to this system because as seen in Voyager mm-hmm. the bioneural circuitry can get sick right in a way it can get infected mm-hmm. uh, with viruses and other infect infectious agents right um, 
So uh, it, it was kind of funny, at least in Voyager, because it was a cheese mold that actually infected uh, the bioneural circuitry. So right, so we don't see this in the Sovereign class starship, which is more of a, I would say, more of a uh, warship, more so than anything yeah, else. Yeah, um, it's definitely like a frigate type of class of of ship. It's bigger. Yeah. It's got more firepower. Yeah, Voyager is, is small in comparison to the Enterprise E. Right, and Voyager was definitely built for science because. On multiple parts of the ship, they had visible sensor clusters Mm -hmm. from the outside. Uh, The most famous one was on the front of Voyager's saucer, that kind of, uh, uh, what would you call that, like kind of trapezoid shape Mm -hmm. that had all these sensors. And there was other visible spots, like behind the back of the bridge and uh, a couple other different areas. So, Voyager was definitely built for science. Right. And I think the bioneural circuitry helped with that to process large amounts of scientific data that Mm -hmm. a science ship would need. Right. Now, I don't know if they ever explored this, but correct Mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong with with this. uh, Species 8472, if they scratched you, you would get infected and... Yeah, that's right. right. So, if A four seven two went onto the ship, would they yeah. be able to infect? Because they had bio ships that they traveled. Yeah, their their ships were completely organic. Right. Uh, you could say that was another species, essentially. Right. right. Would they be able to infect the entire ship of Voyager? Their uh, the computer core of Voyager, essentially. Well, the computer, the computer core. Um, is still, I think, a standard computer core. It's mm-hmm. just these bio, bio neural circuitry, these gel packs, served as the isolinear chips that we see. Right. So most of the isolinear chips were placed with these bio neural cells. Mm-hmm. So the computer core is the same, uh, but it's just the bioneural circuitry is essentially like your RAM, or, you know, it's it's processing that information. Okay. And when they were infected, systems were compromised, and the efficiency of the entire ship uh, was put in danger. So, yes, I think 8472 could somehow infect these. And on Harry Kim, it was a scratch. Right. I don't know how they would do that with the bioneural circuitry, because if you punctured them, it mm. essentially becomes useless. Mm. So unless they, you know, coughed on it or something, <laughs> or put their finger in it, I, I don't know. Right, yeah, right, right. But uh, they, they definitely could inject it somehow. They could inject the pack mm-hmm. without compromising its integrity and definitely infect it. Uh, if, if they could do that to Harry Kim... I'm sure it would definitely have a negative impact on the bioneural circuitry. Okay. So, another unique thing to Voyager, at least the first uh, ship known to incorporate it, was the Emergency Medical Holographic Program, or the EMH. Mm-hmm. Uh, Voyager had an EMH Mark I, and it was used 
uh, it's supposed to be used to assist the main doctor in an emergency. Mm-hmm. And when the doctor was first activated, he immediately questioned, oh, where's the doctor? Well, they're dead, so you're going to have to do everything on your own. Right. The EMH, the doctor, was my favorite character on Voyager. Okay. I think I've said this before in our Doctors episode, but I love the Doctor. He was great. He was a jerk in the first few seasons. It wasn't until the third and fourth season when he developed these relationships with Kess and then Seven of Nine that he really became more human, um, at least in terms of, you know, coming into his own. But a really great season one episode that kind of sets him off on this path was the episode Heroes and Demons, where he falls in love with this Viking uh, holographic character. And it's a great standalone episode for the Doctor. It's really the first time that he starts, you know, being more human, essentially, like having a personality and uh, definitely out of his comfort zone, because I think that was the first time that he was out of the sick bay and actually in in the holograph in the holodeck. I see. So that was basically his first away mission, and he even says that in his own personal log. Yeah, so what did you think of the EMH technology? That was very cool. I, I liked it. I also liked... Uh, a British comedy series called Red Dwarf, which I don't know if you're oh. familiar with. I am familiar with it, but I haven't watched any of it. They have a holographic character, mm, okay, uh, which I, I'm fairly certain predates uh, Voyager. Oh yeah, definitely. So I, I was used to having holographic characters, uh, okay. at, least, at least seeing holographic holographic characters. Uh, and I liked the Doctor. Uh, Doctor is one of the better characters in the series, and mm-hmm. his evolution is one of the is better than some of the other characters in the show. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Cote, which his character kind of, <laughs> you know, hit a plateau. Right, which even the actor uh, Robert Beltran hated. He hated that Chakotay kind of didn't go anywhere. Right. So, but it hit the Doctor's character, I mean, now as, evolution. Yes. Now, as a character much in the same vein as Spock or Data, someone mm-hmm. trying to find their quote-unquote humanity, Right. I know you love Spock forever, mm-hmm. but, uh, but comparing, like, Data and the Doctor and their both of their evolutions, mm-hmm. um, do you like one better than the other? I, I know you're going to say Data, but... Uh, it, You're right. Do you find the similarities there? Uh, definitely there are similarities. Uh, we have... I think there's more similarities between the Doctor and Spock than there are with Doctor and Data. Really? Because at first the Doctor has no emotion. Oh, there you go, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then over time he loosens up. Spock is similar uh, he doesn't loosen up quite as much as the Doctor does. But you see those hints of humanity right. throughout the series and the movies. Right. Yeah, uh, okay. So I would go with that. If if we're going to pick a character 
that's going through uh, finding humanity, mm-hmm. I would go with seven. Well, interesting that you say that because I like the relationship that seven and the doctor had, mm-hmm. uh, and I like that he was in a way finding humanity with her. Right, and that's why I think they became such good friends. Mm-hmm. in the show, that was definitely one of my favorite relationships in Voyager, was the Doctor of Seven and Nine. And they had many fantastic episodes and moments together. Mm-hmm. One last bit about the technology. This was the first time that we've seen a starship land and take off again from a planet. Mm-hmm. And when that happened in uh, the 37s, I thought it was I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was definitely unique. I know it was unique. I know people are going to say, "Oh, well, it's got these four tiny feet supporting this, you know, crazy saucer's top-heavy section." Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, it's Star Trek. There's inertial dampeners, there's, you know, force fields that they can project, anti-gravity. Right. So, I don't think it's There are ways the around it. Yeah. But I take it you have a problem with this. You've been shaking your head the whole time. Yeah. Um, so Voyager's it's a pretty big ship compared to other smaller ships that we've seen land, like Bird of Prey's, that are they're big ships, but not as big as Voyager land. All right, but all right. Uh, to compare in size, mm-hmm. uh, Voyager is essentially the length of the Enterprise Enterprise D's saucer section. Right. It's still a small ship. Oh, I'm not saying... Yeah, no, it's a small ship, but compared to... But it's still big. I get, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's kind of awkward to have it on a planet. I'm, I mean, if you would have to have a lot of space for this thing to land. Right. It, has its, it has its own mode to land. Because they go into blue mode, right? And it's this whole—it pro- is—it's a whole process to land on the ship. They have to vent the warp drive plasma. There's this whole, there's this whole thing that they have to do just to land on a planet. It's definitely not meant to be used frequently, right? But they can do it, right? And I agree; it it, it does look awkward. Yeah, it's <laughs> it looks awkward. <laughs> Um, and like you mentioned, it's four little feet that come out of the Star Trek <laughs> section. <laughs> You're like, what the heck is going on here? Um, and yeah, you know, and they come up with ways to explain why the saucer isn't falling. Like, right. like you said, uh, um, it's the first time we've seen a big, or at least the first time we've seen a starship, a Federation starship yes. land. Yes. Now, if they had the budget in the original series, the Enterprise would have been landing on the surface of the planet, and we probably wouldn't have the transporter. Exactly. Well, I'm glad that Voyager did have this capability, though, because many instances in the series, it was very helpful when mm-hmm. they did do it. Um, especially if they had, at one point, they had to land on a planet to fix their warp core, or mm-hmm. to fix their warp nacelles and the coils, which, um, I forget which episode that is, but there is a very cool shot in that episode where it's on the planet, and you can see them taking out 
the the some of the warp coils in the nacelles, and there's this whole ground operation. It looked very cool. Yeah. And to s- survive in the Delta Quadrant, I assume they had to do that a couple times that we didn't see in the series, mm. just to just to replenish, you know, fix the ship externally, right. um, which is one of my complaints of the series that it wasn't more battle-worn right. as they went on. Right, it still but looked pretty. It still looked shiny and pretty yeah. week after week. Yeah. Um, they they must have had some of the best engineers in Starfleet and right. the Maquis, and they did. But Voyager, over the years, they did incorporate alien technologies. Mm-hmm. They did do their own improvements. Um, but yeah, outwardly... No, it, it didn't. It didn't look like they did anything. But there were instances in the series where it got trashed pretty bad, right? Um, and we did get to see that, so that was cool, right? Yeah. Well, I think we're done talking about the ship. Unless you have any more thoughts. Um, no, I think um, the, uh, the color seemed the color a little <laughs> off of the ship. <laughs> That's nitpicking, but <laughs> that's that's very nitpicky. I, I don't know why it, the uh, it, it was it was a different gray than yeah, the Enterprise. With it on the ship was unique uh, yeah. to Voyager, which I thought was a little weird, personally. I think I didn't think it was weird. I thought it was cool, and they had that um they had that secondary. Uh, deflector dish on the saucer. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought that was cool. I I like that aspect of the ship. I, I like that too. Yeah. And it's great that you can see that redundancy because if the main one went out, they could still fly around. So even though it was an accident that Voyager got stuck in the Delta Quadrant, it was definitely the perfect, perfectly capable ship to survive the Delta Quadrant. Mm-hmm. So. So do you think I mean we do have that Nova class starship yes that gets that gets stuck out there and they go through some issues uh, the Nova class starship has some similar design features it does and it's also a science ship right but it's very much smaller than the Voyager even right do you think a ship let's say uh, the galaxy class starship do you think that would have had an easier time? that far away? Yeah, I think so. Definitely because they definitely had more resource... You would have more resources on a galaxy-class starship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had the uh, like the cetacean pools on the ship, which we never saw. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they had their own arboretum. Right. Voyager, to grow food, they had to create their own hydroponics garden and convert mm-hmm. one of the cargo bays. So I think a larger ship like the Galaxy class could definitely survive better than Voyager. Even in the Star Trek Next Generation technical manual, they say that the Galaxy class is essentially built for that, for long voyages where they don't even need a refit for 50 years. Like if you look into the technical manual. So, yeah, I think long-range... Uh, Galaxy class is great for scientific long range, but mm-hmm. Voyager wasn't long range. It was specifically suited for science and to be able to go wherever, mm-hmm. even land on planets to conduct scientific surveys. Right. 
So, and the ship was fast. It was it was faster than the Galaxy class starship. Yeah, but I don't think that was intentional. I think that was just a an evolution of the warp drive technology. Right. And it was able. Um, fortunately, Voyager was also because it was streamlined. Mm-hmm. It was able to use the slipstream technology efficiently, right? Because the because of their it's essentially an aer- aerodynamic design, which is also great for going into the atmosphere of a planet, right? Um, instead of crash landing like Deanna Troy did in Generations, <laughs> but no, it's um, just a saucer section. Yeah, exactly. I thought Voyager was a cool ship. It's it's one of my favorite starships. Mm-hmm. But enough about that. All right. Let's talk about the crew that commands her. All right. So first we have Captain Catherine Janeway, the commanding officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a captain, what did you think of Janeway? I think she probably made a better science officer than a captain, to be honest. Really? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. You're going with that? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm going to go with. <laughs> I didn't really like her as captain. Hmm. Be honest, she de- uh, she she had a different way of captaining. That's uh-huh. for sure. Uh, being a woman was was part of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I thought she was still a strong captain. Mm-hmm. Um, she she was very determined. There is a whole arc in Voyager in the later half of the series where this burden of stranding all these people in the Delta Quadrant. It took a toll on her, Mm -hmm. and we saw that later in the series, and she felt responsible and guilty for having to make that call because they could have used the caretaker array to go home, Mm -hmm. but instead they saved um, the Ocampa, and that, that was a choice that she had to live with throughout this entire series, and I, I think that affected her character, and that I think that was unique in terms of, of having a captain with that kind of guilt that we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like Janeway. She's not my favorite captain, but right. she's up there, and I thought she did a great job uh, getting everyone home. But there were some decisions that she made that, you know, skirted on that prime directive, and Mm-hmm. Um, there were some that I, some decisions I didn't agree with, um, but she was the one who had to make those calls. Right. And she did become an admiral, so... Yeah. There you go. Yeah, she did. But I, I know you're shaking your head, and I know you wanted Picard to be an admiral, but Picard wanted to be a captain. He wanted to stay a captain for as long as he wanted to. Yeah, no, I mean, I... that's That might be a reason why... I don't like her as much as a captain. Because she wasn't captain long enough? No, it's, it's... See, like, you have these characters, like, we have Kirk. Right. Who's captain, then becomes an admiral, but longs to be back in the captain's chair. And he even tells Picard in Generations, he's like, stay in that seat as long as you can. You know, don't let them take her away from you. You know, stay a captain. Right. And then we have Janeway, who uh, was this? This was her first command, right? Yeah, this this was her first uh, captaincy. Okay, so maybe it was uh, because she was a little wet behind the ears, so to speak. 
That's uh, fair. Maybe she could have made better decisions as a captain. If she but, had more experience. But she she was a commander before uh, before Voyager. She was a commander aboard the USS Billings. So she had a science start in her career. Mm-hmm. She was a science officer aboard the Albatani, which was captained by uh, Tom Paris's father, Owen Paris. Mm-hmm. So she started out in science, but then she switched to the command division. So she was a commander. It's not like she didn't have command experience. Right. But this was her first time as a captain. Right. I mean, it's one thing being the commander of a ship and mm-hmm. another thing being captain of a ship. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's no question there. So, I don't know. I, I think a lot of things were working against her. Mm. It was her mm-hmm. first command. Then she gets suddenly thrown into the Delta Quadrant. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm being too hard on her. That's a lot to deal with. It is a lot to deal with, and she had to take all that responsibility on her shoulders. So this was forging her in a fire. Right. And, yeah, towards the end, I thought Janeway was was amazing, and she was a good captain, and she rallied her crew. I personally, I think, like, I really like, towards the end of Voyager, I really like that family aspect that they... I, I don't want to say pu- were pushing, but it they became a family. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, some would say, oh, well, then Janeway's the mother, her, her, her. Well, no, she was their captain, but she did everything that she could for her crew, mm-hmm. given their situation. And I think that's a good aspect of a captain. Right. And we definitely talked about her command a lot in our captain's episode, right. which I think people should listen to. Well, let's move on to Commander Chakotay. He was the executive officer of the ship. What what did you think about Chakotay? Okay, so we have Chakotay. Yeah. Uh, He was a member of the Marquis. Yeah. uh, Former Starfleet officer. Mm Mm-hmm. So he has that going for him. His character was kind of flat. Yeah. And, I mean, basically he's just saying... Red alert. <laughs> uh, uh, repeating commands. I mean, he. I mean, what do you think? I mean, well, um, there were aspects of Chakotay's character that I liked. Mm-hmm. I liked his early stories, early in the series. I liked all of those, um, the ones that focused on him, and uh, definitely his his background with his culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, being a, a, a Native American. Right. And it was heavily implied that his tribe were on the planet from the next generation that got... There was that dispute with the Cardassians. Right. And he was from that planet. That that was heavily implied. And that's why he joined the Maquis. But I liked the episodes that dealt with his culture and went into that backstory. And there there were a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, I feel he got the the short end of the stick in terms of character, and it's something like we said that uh, Robert Beltran became very vocal about uh, when he was filming Voyager. Mm-hmm. And you know, last year I got the chance to see him talk about it right. uh, at the Chicago Creation Convention. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you saw the same thing. He he was angry 
that his character didn't get more and that they couldn't find more to do with his character. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that respect, yeah, he was very flat. He's not my favorite commander mm-hmm. at all. Um, but when Janeway wasn't there, I thought he did a good job, you know, coming on to his own when he needed to. Right. Um, I especially liked his relationship with Bellana. Um, right. A very strong episode where Bellana was almost becoming suicidal and taking these chances. That was ex- the episode Extreme Risk. And he was there for her. And he was saying, look, I've known you for a long time. I thought that was a great, not just a Balan episode, but a great Chakotay episode. Mm-hmm. And I wish we had more moments like that with his character for other people. There were other interactions. Right. And I liked the conflict between him and Tom Paris early on, but they didn't do anything with it. Right. And right. I thought that was a shortfall. And don't get me started on the Chakotay-Janeway romance thing. Mm-hmm. They never went with it. There was always this will-they-won't-they they that, personally, I didn't like in the series. Well, did you like the Chakotay 7? Oh, hell no. Yeah. Because that came out of nowhere, and it was complete I, BS. I feel like they were just trying to do something with his character. They were, but it was it was uh, too little, too late. It was the seventh season, like the final five or so episodes where they started to hint that crap. Right. And nowhere else in the series, like maybe that one time where he went with her to that planet with the Borg thing and early on when she was, um, you know, when he got into that hive mind with the other Borg on, mm-hmm. that was strained on that planet. But other than that, no. That was was the worst thing they did with his character. And I think he even said it himself. Like, that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. It was just... That was a terrible way to deal with the Janeway-Chakotay thing. They did resolve that in the Voyager relaunch novels, and it made a hell of a lot more sense. And I thought his character was better in the novels than in in his own show, which is... It's that sad. Yeah. And I agree. Uh, moving on to Tuvok, the security chief slash technical officer slash second officer. Tactical officer. What did I say? Technical. Technical. Tactical. Tactical. Um, I really liked Tuvok. Mm-hmm. At first, I was skeptical that a Vulcan could be in security, mm-hmm. but... I thought he was one of the best security officers that we've had. Um, just from his experience, um, where you can use that Vulcan emotionless like coldness to your advantage when you're in a security chief role. Right. Um, and I really liked the spiritual moments that we saw mm. from him. And mentoring Kess... I thought that was a really big part. And then also he kind of had this friendship with Seven of Nine because they they kind of both had this like emotional coldness right. that they could relate to. Yeah, and, and his relationship with Neelix, uh the you know, the love hate relationship that they had. That right. was that was a great part of the series too. I I, I, I like Tuvok. I really did. He's he's one of my favorite characters in that show. 
I think Tuvok's character was decent. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, I had my skepticism that he could be a security officer. Because if you think about it, we've only seen, up, in, up to this point, we've only seen them as science officers. Right. Although, uh... Well, Spock, he was in command. He was a captain. He was, uh, yep, that's true, he was, uh... And in Deep Space Nine, we saw that whole ship of of Vulcans. Right, that whole ship of Vulcans, and they were kind of mean. I I wouldn't say, I would never say that Tuvok was ever mean. Right. But it was just that, it was that distance that you get from a Vulcan. Mm -hmm. Um, And he had a very deep friendship with Janeway, they were already friends before Voyager, mm-hmm. and in a way, he was almost like her counsel. She was the one, or he was the one that she could go to for advice. Mm-hmm. And um, I liked their relationship as well. Yeah, no, that, that was good. What kind of threw me, I think, mm-hmm. early on in the series is having the Doctor, which didn't have emotion early on, and then mm-hmm. having this Vulcan that didn't have emotion. I felt like it was oh, doubling yeah. up, as it were, on that. On the aspect. emotionless characters? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Yeah. Um, and that might be why I'm I'm not... I never really warmed up to the series. Uh, yeah, the first... I, I, I will admit, the first season... Um, you know, is definitely a, a little rough to get through. Uh, the second season, they start finding their own, and there's a lot of great episodes, uh, like Tuvix, which was a yeah. season two episode, right. and we talked about, which was a great episode for uh, his and Neelix's character, even though they became one person. Right, and, and rewatching that episode, it was oh, really yeah. good because uh, my memory was totally off about that episode. I thought it was ridiculous the first time I and saw it. And it ended up being highly emotional and impactful. Right, right. That's why I think you should do a Voyager rewatch. Maybe I'll consider it. Okay. I'll consider it. All right. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it's when... I think Voyager started finding its own in the third and fourth season, and the later seasons, I thought, were the best. Mm-hmm. But... Tuvok did get a lot of great focus episodes, and he was one of the more fleshed-out characters in the show. Right, because we did have that episode where we... Uh, flashback, I believe it's called, where we yes. see Sulu. That that was cool. That was very cool to see. That was, that was a great uh, episode, and I believe that was the 35th... No, the thirty. No, that was the thirtieth anniversary special episode. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, and it was great seeing Sulu again. Right. That's another thing I like about Voyager. They had a lot of continuity, not just within their own series continuity, but with a lot of the other shows. Um, I mean, we got we got Sulu, we got Q, uh, we had Riker back at one point. Right. There was there was all these things that tied back into other shows, and I thought I thought that's one thing Voyager did well as well. It it helped to flesh out more of the Star Trek universe. Right, and that's what every series and movie should be. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Next, we're going to move on to Lieutenant Junior Grade Tom Paris. Uh, he started out as a helmsman, and after Kess left, he also doubled duty as a nurse. And <laughs> I'm wondering, was there no one on board that had any kind of nurse or medical training that could also help the doctor? I think there were, we just didn't see them. For a science ship, there were very little blue shirts, I would say. Yep. But at the same time, the Badlands mission was, you know, they weren't going in fully equipped. It was just going to be like, okay, we're just going to, you know, catch these guys and, and move on to our real assignment. Right. And most, as we saw in Caretaker... Most of the medical staff got killed. Yep. In I, I mean, we lost the the main doctor and several nurses. In caretaker, sick bay was absolutely trashed. It was one of the hardest hit areas of the ship mm. with that damage. So I believe we lost a lot of um, medical personnel when they got transferred to the Delta Quadrant. Right. That's why so early on the doctor took on Cass as a nurse. Yeah. And later on in the series, we do see uh, a couple other nurses in the background when Voyager is heavily damaged. But I think the reason, I don't remember the reason why he was assigned a nurse. I think part of that was his punishment. <laughs> I remember in, um, it, it was probably Caretaker when the doctor, you know, had this uh, uh, bad bedside manner. Yes. Um, he was basically made Tom the nurse uh, during this uh, time that was being, yeah. you know, it's triage. Uh, uh, yeah, and and I think Tom even said at, at, at one point he did have some uh, triage training. So I don't mind that he became a nurse. Mm -hmm. um, I did think it was odd because uh, right. we never seen that before, especially someone... Uh, pulling double duty like that. Right, something that's completely unrelated. Right, right. <laughs> the helm and nursing. Yeah, becoming becoming a medical assistant. But overall, I liked Tom's kind of cockiness, I which is well. which is something that we haven't seen a lot in Star Trek, especially these later series, because everyone's supposed to be oh, I live in a perfect world, and mm -hmm. la, 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 and, you know, my emotions are in check, and, you know, everyone's happy, a productive member of society, but he started out as a prisoner. He was disgraced, he had this cocky attitude, and he wasn't afraid to talk back to people or voice his concerns, and that was throughout the series. That, that just wasn't a first season thing. Right. Um, so I liked his character for that. I liked that you know he wasn't afraid to go against command and say, "Look, this is how I feel. This is what we should do." I also liked his friendship with Harry Kim. That was oh, another strong. Well. That was another strong aspect of Voyager, and I also liked his fascination with uh, the twentieth century. That was cool. Interesting. And we saw that early on with uh, with the 37s, which was uh, Voyager's season two premiere. He instantly recognized that was a 
you know, Ford truck floating in space. Right. And I thought it was fun that when he built the Delta Flyer, he incorporated controls from Captain Proton and, you know, flips and switches and dials. Yeah. No, that was I, cool. Yeah. That was very so cool. I, I liked I liked that he was a greasehead and he was one of their best he was their best pilot. Mm-hmm. And surprising for Voyager, I think this was one of the first times that we saw a character demoted. Mm. Well, I mean, aside aside from Kirk, but but that was another thing. Like Tom had reflections of Kirk in a way, like a young Kirk, mm-hmm. and. It was just surprising to see his demotion and for it to stick for almost a full season right? where he got bumped down to an ensign. I thought that was a great turnaround for his character. No, I agree. I feel like if we didn't have the character of Tom Paris and just like in the next gen where we just had a random no-name Helms officer, yes. okay probably would have gotten more screen time, more character development. I can see that. I feel like having such a charismatic character as Tom Paris... On the bridge. On the bridge. It takes away from Chakotay. Wow, that's that's a really good point, yeah. And you're right. In other series, it was always just like Enston of the Week or, you know, whoever. Mm Mm-hmm. yeah, so that that was interesting. I mean, we haven't had a Helmsman character since Sulu in a regular Star Trek series. I mean, you did with... I mean, that didn't work in The Next Generation, which right. is why they kind of went away from it. Exactly. Uh, so, because as you saw, like, characters suffered. You didn't have... I don't want to make this The Next Generation no. show, but we have Geordi, which doesn't mm-hmm. really go anywhere... We have a no-name or character of the week for main engineering. Right. So you have, like, so many characters on the bridge and then little characters of development because what are you going to have them all do? Right, when they're all gathered in one place, yeah. Right. So, you know, I'm moving, getting rid of Tasha Yar, getting rid of a character, because then you had Worf, too, that was just up there. Just standing the there, yeah. Yeah. Right, so you had too many people. I think that's... So you think happened. Voyager suffers a little bit from that, and it right. took away from Chakotay's character. Right. That's that's interesting. And we're, we're going to talk about Balana a bit, but did you like the relationship between Tom and Balana? Uh, I thought it was kind of weird <laughs> at first. <laughs> Uh, at, but first, I, at first, it was a shocker, I think, for a lot of people because there was there was some hints. I mean, they always had like this playful, like butting heads mm-hmm. early on the series, but no one expected that they, in Day of Honor, when they were put together, mm-hmm. that you know it become this relationship. Right, because I felt like he was like a, another James Kirk kind of a ladies' man that wasn't going to settle down. Right. And then all oh, yeah. of a sudden, he becomes a family guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was a change for his character, but I think it also helped mature his character because you can't have the cocky guy for seven seasons. That's Someone's going to smack him upside the head. Mm-hmm. And I think 
that season four, season five, and then especially when he got demoted, it just it added another layer to his character, which I also think added another layer from the relationship he had with Bellana. Um So, and you're right, you know, maybe with Tom there, maybe some of that development would have gone to Chakotay. Because mm-hmm. Chakotay and Bellana, they kind of had a past too. Right. And, yeah, I, I like your theory. If, if Tom was gone, maybe Chakotay would have shined more. But I wouldn't want to sacrifice Tom's pair. No, I, Tom I wouldn't either. Character. I wouldn't either. Yeah. So. So moving on to Lieutenant Junior Grade Belana Torres, who mm-hmm. was the chief engineer, and she was from the Maquis side. Mm-hmm. A brilliant engineer. Right. She had to do a lot to not only fix the ship, but incorporate all this new technology they were coming across. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite early episodes with her uh, was Warhead, where it was that Cardassian missile that also got swept into the Delta Quadrant. And she had to outsmart it. Mm-hmm. And because she was the one that originally programmed it. Oh, okay. So that was a fantastic episode for a character. There was another episode like that where, well, there's a few episodes like that. There's the one where she had to, you know, fix this alien or this alien robot or android. I like that episode. Yeah, that was a good episode. And the other one uh, later in the series where her and the doctor were dealing with that psycho hologram that mm-hmm. that hologram that went crazy. So yeah, I, I thought she was a strong character. She definitely butted heads with a lot of people, but none more so than Seven of Nine when Seven first showed up. Mm. But what what are your thoughts on Bellana? I like the character. A lot of development with her character, yes. I think. It was nice it was nice to have a Klingon back. Yeah, it was cool. Uh she was half human, half Klingon. And not in a way we expect. You would think, like Worf, a security would be great for a Klingon. But mm-hmm. so it was interesting to see, you know, a half Klingon have, you know, uh, as an engineer and right. a chief engineer, and something that Chakotay fought for. To yes, have her, which I I like that aspect that she wasn't just given the the she the wasn't. Job. Yeah, she, she wasn't just Yeah, and she had to prove herself. Mm-hmm. And the captain eventually, Captain Janeway, was the one that said, "Okay, but you're going to have to work at it." Right. And there was definitely a mentor relationship with her and Janeway because you know Janeway would sometimes have to reel her in, mm-hmm. but uh, Bellana was very vocal at times, right. and especially putting another Maquis member in that command structure. Early on, the character of Joe Carey, who was supposed to be the chief engineer, you know, they really butted heads. And so she didn't have to just prove herself to the captain and Chicote. She had to prove herself to her entire engineering team. Right. Didn't she break someone's nose yes. in that episode? Yeah. Yes. And, uh, yeah, and, yeah, she had to deal with that. Right, so clean on temper. But, uh, it's weird because Worf, he never had a temper like that. And he was full Klingon. He was full Klingon, raised by humans. 
and she was half human, half Klingon. I don't remember if uh, who raised her. I believe it was her mom. Yeah, because her dad left. Her dad left her early on, I believe. Her dad was human. Her dad was human, and her mom was Klingon, which was great because I love that episode where she sees her mom in the afterlife, uh, Barge of the Dead. That was a great episode. Yeah, her, yeah, her, her dad's, her dad was human. Her mom was Klingon. So Mir- Muriel was, you know, Muriel was her mom, and so they were separated when Balana was five. And mainly the breakup was due because her mom had such strong and strict Klingon beliefs, mm. which also caused a rift between her and Balana. Because Balana blamed her mom for the broken marriage, and she never quite forgave her for it. I see. So, in a way, Balana also, she resented her Klingon side. Mm. But at times, she fully embraced it. Right. She she at least embraced the passion that Klingons had. Right. So, yeah, I, I love that aspect of her. And uh, a great early episode was when she was split. Uh, into the pure human side and the pure Klingon side. Right. And she realized that, uh, you know, she couldn't be separate because both sides give her strength. Mm. And that was the epi- the season one episode, uh, Faces, which is a very strong season one episode. Okay. An episode uh, I'll have to revisit. Yes. Uh, next, we have Ensign Harry Kim. He was the operations officer aboard Voyager. Uh, another character that I think suffers from what you came up with, which was this like oversaturated bridge syndrome, mm-hmm. because yeah, he I he didn't progress much in the series. Right. He never got promoted, uh, even though he should have. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a weaker character, definitely in the beginning. I mean, he was right. fresh out of Starfleet. Right. But I liked him more as the series went on. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly that was due in part to his friendship with Tom. But he he I think Harry came into his own in the later seasons. And my favorite Harry Kim episode is Timeless. Uh, seeing the future Harry Kim you know, deal with the his mistake of... Uh, it was kind of like an alternate timeline. Okay. Uh, but, you know, seeing the future Harry Kim deal with his mistake of that slipstream experiment that, you know, he and Chakotay were ahead in the shuttle, in mm-hmm. the Delta Flyer, and Voyager, um, because of his miscalculations, Voyager ended up crashing. Okay. And Timeless is... I think one of my top ten Voyager episodes, anyway. But that was a really strong. That was a really strong episode for his character, at least seeing what his character could become. I see. And I also liked Harry Kim in the finale. Again, seeing him in command and mm. of his own starship, I, I think that was rewarding for his character after kind of getting screwed seven years of not going anywhere. Right. But he had he had a couple interesting episodes here and there. The one where 
he was like kind of like back in time, like if he never went. On oh, that Voyager. was yeah, yeah, and he was like he worked. Uh, he was an engineer or something. That was a yeah, good episode. yeah. That that was a, another good episode. So right. he had his moments, just not as many moments to shine as I would have liked. Right. No, I I completely agree with you on on this character. Uh, yeah. We already talked about the doctor, the mm-hmm. chief medical officer. Right. Uh, he had a great arc. I love that he got the mobile emitter. Yeah. And he was able, he was given that freedom. Mm-hmm. And I like that. The mobile emitter exists. I just don't like how it came how it to exists. Being. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's 29th century technology from the Future's End episode. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but it seemed like one of those. Yeah, it was from the future, but it wasn't so advanced that you know Bolana or even himself couldn't work on it. Right. Right. So. It's like one of those things, like, I'll kind of allow it. (laughs) Like, I didn't mind that it was 29th century tech, because it almost seemed like that was something that Starfleet would have created sooner rather than later anyway. Right. This was just the most refined version of it. Right. Um, One question I want to ask you, what did you think towards the end of the series when the Doctor really started promoting holographic rights. Hmm, interesting. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about holographic rights as opposed to the rights of other artificial life forms. Like Data? Like Data. Mainly because he's just light in force fields in a computer core. Um, that might be a biased opinion. Mm-hmm. Do you think the Doctor is sentient? I think he is sentient. Okay. We we also have had other sentient holograms, and we they just took the hologram and put him into a little computer core right. to run. Uh, I don't know if uh, it's it's kind of a weird. It, it's it's kind of, we could go on a whole episode about that alone. Yeah, yeah, because I mean we have Moriarty from TNG. This is the character I'm talking about, where we put him into right. a little self-contained computer core where he can go and have his adventures or whatever he's going to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you did that with the Doctor, is that imprisoning him? I, I don't know. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like, I think he, because of Voyager and because of his experiences, it made him more than he was. Mm-hmm. And I think there's... Because obviously there are holograms that are meant to be for utilities. Like, we saw the Doctor's creator, uh, Zimmerman, he had a holographic assistant. Mm -hmm. We know that there are other EMH programs, Mm -hmm. the Enterprise-E, and then in Message in a Bottle, we saw the EMH Mark, I think it was Mark V, with a different look. Oh, Andy Dick. Andy Dick, a different personality. I love that. Again, another episode that was I, in my top. Yeah, the Prometheus episode, I that's a great episode. Fantastic. I loved everything about it. Yeah, I um, did too. And it was great because that was our first time where we went back into the Alpha Quadrant mm-hmm. for real <laughs> right. with, with the Doctor. And that character moment for the Doctor was great because that was 
everything was riding on the success of his mission. Mm-hmm. And to basically have to take over a ship from Romulans and also deliver the message to Starfleet, that was an incredible moment for the Doctor. Right. But my point was, I don't think there's enough time where these other holograms are used enough to gain the opportunity of sentience. Right. The Doctor is definitely a very rare case. Mm-hmm. And I think the Doctor should be given full rights like Data, mm-hmm. but I don't know if his crusade for other holographic entities should mm-hmm. be extended. Again, for Moriarty, yes, he was bad, he was evil, so that Cube was essentially an imprisonment for him. Right. But him and the Doctor are very rare instances of sentient holograms, holographic right. beings. Right. You should watch Red Dwarf. Uh, I, I will. Do they deal with this issue? Well, see, what happens is... This is a huge tangent right now. <laughs> I want to explain. The character... Uh, so, when a, a crew member dies and they're deemed important enough, yeah. the ship, they have everyone's brain on file essentially. So <laughs> okay. They can bring that character back as a hologram to uh, interact. Early on in the series, uh, you can't touch anything. Right. Or a soft, quote-unquote, a soft light hologram. Ah. Uh. But, <laughs> so they have all the rights of any other person would have. Okay. Just automatically I, from the start? Just automatically from the start. There, It's like, you know, you died, but now you're back. And oh, okay. The only way you can tell that it's a hologram is that each hologram will have an H on their head to signify that they're a, a hologram. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, isn't it more of like a comedy series? Oh yeah, it's, it's definitely okay. a comedy series, and uh, the guy is really uh, he's a, he's a dick. Uh, the guy that's <laughs> a hologram, he's a real dick. Uh, but uh, it's it's funny, and everyone out there, if you have Hulu or Netflix, you can you can watch Red Dwarf. Oh, it's on both. Yes, yes, yeah, on both. Oh wow! Well, then there's no excuse for me. No, ex- no excuse at all. It's it's <laughs> it's good. Um, really funny. It's kind of slow at points. Beginning. Isn't it one of the longer running British shows? Like it's been around for a while, hasn't it's, it? It's been around, uh, and they keep on bring every now and bring then they'll back. come back with us with another series. Oh uh, wow! So it's uh, it's good. I, I recommend it. It's funny. It's not serious comedy. It's what Homeboys in Outer Space uh, was trying to be, I think. Oh, God. <laughs> Homeboys in Outer Space, another UPN classic. Yeah, yeah, I had to bring it back to you. Wow, you totally brought it back to you. <laughs> Homeboys in Outer Space, oh, my God. <laughs> I remember that crap. That yeah. was crap. That was Plus, pure crap. Uh, <laughs> but moving on, let's, go, yep. let's get back to Voyager. <laughs> Uh, moving on, so Seven of Nine, she mm-hmm. was the astrometrics officer, and she was aboard Voyager from 2374 to 2378. She was a human uh, named Annika Hansen that was assimilated by the Borg at a very early age. 
her parents were aboard the USS Raven, and they were scientists that had speculated about the Borg's existence, mm -hmm. and they were one of the first humans to come in contact with the Borg. So, yeah, she was assimilated by the Borg, and she was part of the Unimatrix 1, which was basically tied to the Borg Queen. Right. So she was very close in terms of the hierarchy of the Borg structure uh, to the Queen. Mm -hmm. And she was, like her name implies, she was seven of nine in that Unimatrix, zero one. Right. Um, so because she had such close ties to the Borg Queen, that brought Voyager into conflict directly with the heart of the Borg mm -hmm. for the rest of the series. Seven of Nine was very controversial. Mm -hmm. A lot of, you know, fan... Well, a lot of people thought it was just boobs for right. Star Trek, especially with her cat suit. Right. But Seven of Nine was a very complex character, mm -hmm. and she became one of my favorite characters as the series moved on, you know, trying to find her humanity. A lot of people complain that season four was just the season of Seven of Nine, but when you bring a character in like that, you have to develop that character relatively quickly because they're part of the main cast. Right. So, yes, season four is very Seven of Nine heavy, but I thought they did a great job of quickly bringing her character as part of the crew of Voyager. Mm -hmm. She had a lot of she had a lot of growth that season. Right. And totally rightly right. so. Yep. Uh did you like Seven of Nine? Um yes and no. Uh like you mentioned, uh she was easy on the eyes. <laughs> is a big reason why they brought her on. Right. I'm not going to deny that. That was definitely a ratings ploy. Because mm -hmm, we also see something very similar in Enterprise. Right. With uh, the casting of T'Pol. And Seven of or Seven of Nine. And Jerry Ryan, at one point, did date Brandon Braga. There mm. was that relationship. I didn't know so that. So he was the creator, one of the creators and executive producers of the entire franchise at that point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, there's definitely that she was brought in for the sex appeal. There's right. there's no questioning that. I thought there was uh, good character development. Yeah. Better than a lot of other characters on the show. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting having a half, essentially a half Borg, half human Right. on the show. You have to go back to Captain Picard to have that kind of uh, right. character, which uh, we've talked about this in the past. Picard was only assimilated for a short time. Cass, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, not Cass. Uh, Seven of Nine was assimilated for most, most of her of life. life. Yeah, right. So there's going to be a hard time for anyone who's been assimilated for that long to disconnect from right. that from that life. And she became a great wealth of knowledge mm -hmm. to deal with the Borg. Right. Because when, you know, there were hints later in season three that they were approaching Borg space. And, you know, there you could tell that they, they were scared because mm -hmm. 
the Borg are, are one of Starfleet's most formidable enemies. Right. So it was a great opportunity that Voyager got Seven of Nine and, you know, were able to help her because she had this wealth of Borg knowledge and she was able to help them so much. She was able to help them survive, you know, all of their encounters with the Borg. Mm-hmm. So, right, which they probably wouldn't have unless they had someone like that to guide them. Exactly. So I really like Seven of Nine's character. If you get past the eye candy part of it, uh, Jerry Ryan is an amazing actress. Um, yeah, she's got the look. She's got the brains. She's a fantastic female character. And I think that's why Voyager is loved by a, a big female audience. Yeah, but, you have a three strong female characters on the show. Yes, and which was something that I'm glad that Voyager did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to have a strong female presence that we hadn't seen before in Voyager. And I also liked Seven of Nine and Janeway's relationship mm. in the series because, in a way, Janeway was mentoring her right. and and guiding her. But yeah, they 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 butted heads. You know, sometimes Seven of Nine made mistakes because mm-hmm. um, she was never Starfleet, never right. Starfleet trained. Oh, interesting. She's not Starfleet, nor she Marquis. So she's like she added a third aspect. Yeah. yeah, she was very much alone at times, and early on, she faced discrimination from both sides, mm-hmm. Starfleet and Marquis. I wouldn't. Bl- I wouldn't blame them though. Right, because so many people in Starfleet were affected by Wolf 359. Either friends were killed or assimilated, and they deal with that those consequences in future episodes. We come across a survivor of Wolf 359 that was assimilated into the Collective. Mm-hmm. And some people say, well, yeah, but that Borg cube was destroyed. You know, where did... How did those assimilated Starfleet officers get to the Delta Quadrant? But at the same time, how did the Borg Queen survive First that contact. ship blowing up? Yeah. So I, I think you know, I, I know we're kind of getting it's a, a little bit off. Show. It's, it's a sci-fi <laughs> show. But I kind of think that there's they basically have transwarp transporters. So when a ship blows up, it's basically like their escape pod. That's what I kind of think. Interesting. I. Wouldn't I'm not sure if I agree with you with the Wolf three five nine ones uh-huh. unless they transported them before they reached Earth because they were all in in a sleep mode they were all regenerating. That's true. Yeah. So it would have had to have happened before they reached Earth. Another thing is they could have launched a sphere from the cube, like First Contact, which the spheres were shown to be like an escape vehicle. Mm-hmm. And, and they could have sent that out before it reached Earth and we didn't see it. Maybe to take all the assimilated humans from the battle to the Delta Quadrant so they their, you know, their uniqueness could be added to the collective, essentially. Right. right. I can see that. Yeah. I, th- I thought 709 was a great character, so moving on. Uh, <laughs> Now we've got Neelix, uh-huh. who was the morale officer. Well, first he was the chef, mm-hmm. uh, morale officer, and also ambassador. And he was a Talaxian. So he 
was kind of like this space trader <laughs> junk guy. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. It's it's almost comedic. Well, um, he was definitely there for the comedy. Yeah. I mean, in Caretaker, you know, he's taking a bath in two box like WTF. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he's like, oh, water, yay. Yeah. yeah. But I, I did like Neelix. Uh, there were many funny moments uh, with him. Uh, he was definitely a light-hearted part of the crew. Mm-hmm. But at times it did get dark right. uh, with his character. Uh, his whole family was murdered in uh, the... Talaxian War with uh, those other guys that I can't remember right now. <laughs> yeah. But there were dark parts of his, of his character, which I'm glad they added. Mm-hmm. He wasn't strictly just a cartoon type of character. Right. Uh, but my favorite part was when, or the favorite arc I had was him with Naomi Wildman and mm-hmm. kind of be- and being her godfather mm-hmm. and you know reading bedtime stories to her and when her mother was in trouble Samantha Wildman and there was a possibility that she might have died um you know having to deal deal with breaking that news to her or coming to terms that he would almost have to take care with her if her mom did die right so I, I really li- I really like Neelix's character. He could be annoying at times, but most of the time he could be the sense of reason or kind of a counselor in a way. He f- almost mm-hmm. filled that counselor role on the ship. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, what, I agree. Did Did you like Neelix? I thought he was an okay character. I liked him more than Jacote's character, <laughs> uh, just because he had more screen time. It seemed. Right. Um, and like so many colorful outfits. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I thought it was good to have this uh, kind of a comic relief on the show. Mm-hmm. I thought it was very... I have his cookbook. I do as well. Uh, <laughs> I have yet to make anything from it, but... <laughs> I thought it was cool that they were able to integrate him in and give him a purpose with having him as a chef on the ship. Yes, and I thought it was hilarious early on in the uh, very early on in the first season where he converted the captain's private you know dining hall into <laughs> this complete mess hall, mm-hmm. which it, it fit their needs perfectly. Right. Yeah. So he was also very inventive. Yeah, he served multiple purposes on the ship, and uh, it was a unique character type and type of job that we haven't seen before on Star Trek. Right. And uh, like you said, uh, I liked his interactions and his relationship with Tuvok. Yes. Uh, one of the highlights of the show, I think. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, Mr. Vulcan. Yeah, Mr. Vulcan. <laughs> and uh, finally, we have Kess. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was on the first three seasons of the show and also made a couple cameos in later seasons. She was on the ship from 2371 to 2374. Uh, she was Ocampin, and she was in a relationship with Neelix, mm-hmm. which I always thought was kind of weird since right. she's so young and he's kind of middle-aged. And I know that their lifespans are different because they only live for eight to nine years. Right. But I always thought that was a little weird. 
Um, I thought it was cute at first, but in the end, I'm glad that they broke up. Oh, yeah, no, I am too. It was a point of uh, kind of like conflict between him and Tom Paris early on. Yes. Yeah, so you had Tom Paris fighting, butting heads with Chakotay, but you also had this jealousy love triangle thing with uh, her and Tom and Neelix. Right. I thought that was interesting. It was, yeah. Uh, something again. We had, we I never seen that before in Star Trek. Right. It was interesting that her character introduced us to um, this type of species that was very different in many ways, especially with the um, shorter lifespan. And you know, it brought up some good issues early on in the series. You know. Mm-hmm. What do you do with your life when it's that short? And I also liked her relationship with Tuvok and Tuvok helping her to meditate and control her mental powers, mm-hmm. which uh, developed over time. Right. And uh, another character to add in, which took away again from Chicote. So, so, yeah, uh, Voyager did have a large cast. Do you feel that was a detriment to the show? I think so. Okay. I do. But they're all great characters. Individually, they are. Yeah. I think you're spreading it too thin trying to create storylines for each character. But in a way, isn't that kind of a mute point because Deep Space Nine had so many primary and secondary characters? Or do you think that Deep Space Nine juggled that better than Voyager did. I, I think it did. And uh, I would have to agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. I, I love Voyager, but with the amount of characters, supporting characters that Deep Space Nine had, I think they did a better job of elevating all of those characters, mm-hmm. not just CERN ones. And I would say that because you had such a heavy season four with seven of nine, and she got the majority of those episodes, I feel that took a season away from some other characters. Right. That was a weaker point in the show, even though I love the majority of season four. Mm-hmm. But I think that was, it hit the pause button on a lot of other characters in the show. Right. Development-wise. I agree. Okay, so moving on, let's go to subspace channels. We haven't had one of these in a while, so it's it's, it's good to good. bring it back. It's very good, and we got a ton of responses from this from multiple social media spheres. I'm, I'm actually surprised at how many answers we have. You know why? It's because Star Trek Voyager is such a great show that many it's because people love. Hey, Star Trek Voyager gets so little attention that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> uh, okay. We we asked, what is your favorite moment or memory of Star Trek Voyager? And first, do you have a favorite memory or moment? Oh. Hmm. So one of the episodes that kind of jumps out at me uh, for no particular reason is, and I think I've said this before, the episode with the micro-wormhole. M- microcosm? It was um, a micro-wormhole. 
No, I mean the episode. I think that's called oh, Microcosm. Oh, the name of the episode? It might be. I, I don't remember the name of the episode. But when they are transmitting a message and a Romulan is, is there. Oh, oh, that one. Um, yeah. That was... Shoot, that was early on, too. It was God. early on, yeah. I, I know what you're talking about, too. But no, I... I, I know which one you're talking about. It was yeah. that was a fantastic episode. Yeah, I thought that. Uh, I mean, it did bring in some Alpha or yeah Alpha Quadrant into the Delta Quadrant, which I maybe it was just the separation, like we said, the separation between the ship and the Alpha Quadrant. I right. think is what I didn't like about the show, show overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that episode, I really enjoyed. And it was interesting how, you know, you bring in some physics into this, um, right. where we have this wormhole, and it's not only through space, it's also through, through time. time. Yeah, so, that was such a great twist Yeah, towards the end. It was like, wait, oh, they didn't just go there. That was called Eye of the Needle. That was go. in the first season. There we go. The first season had some gems. Yeah. It really did. And that was the big shining gem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, that's one of my one of my favorite episodes uh, that jumps out at me. I, I've always liked that one, even when I was younger, uh, watching it uh, when it's through its first run. That episode, uh, I thought A four seven two was cool mm-hmm. uh, overall as a species. Maybe not the impl- implementation of. Or yeah, I would agree with them. that. Towards, yeah, yeah. But when their debut, it was like, holy crap, something that could destroy the Borg? This yeah. is insane. Right. Uh, that was cool. Uh, what else? Uh, we mentioned mes- Message in a Bottle. Message in a Bottle. Yes, with yeah, the, uh, the Prometheus. Prometheus. That was very cool. Another thing that goes back to the Alpha Quadrant. Um, but that was cool. Uh, also dealing with the Romulans, interesting enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love yeah. that it introduced the Herosion in Voyager, yeah. which became a significant player in the series. Right. Yeah. I, like I said, I love Message in a Bottle. Um, absolutely one of my standout episodes that I, I love. It's mm-hmm. It always stuck with me. I remember when I first watched it, I was so excited. I had so many, like, fist pump moments and <laughs> oh my god there's, there's Alpha Quadrant and that's a Prometheus and, mm-hmm. but I think my favorite memory of Voyager was having some friends over from high school uh, when the series ended it was you know okay. a year after I graduated high school and you know having a couple of my friends over and watching the finale mm-hmm. um, actually went for one of my class projects in college I designed an endgame poster mm-hmm. for for the finale, and that was one of my first major Photoshop uh, projects. So cool. that's that's cool. V- Voyager is just so ingrained to me. That's why I like it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was definitely ingrained in that part of my life that it, it left an impression on me. Right. No, I I agree with you. There's uh, one thing. I want to mention really quick. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer with oh. Voyager. There was an episode which it was a two-parter mm-hmm. that 
I thought was going to be epic, and I so wanted it to be successful. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. Is that the one with uh, the Vaudevoir, that that species that was supposed to come back? No, not, not that, that one. one. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah. They kind of left that nowhere. But w- what was the two-parter? The uh, I'm gonna have to come up well, with the name really quick. But the one where they go back to 1996. Oh, you mean um, shoot times. Blah, blah, blah. No. Um, oh, crap. Oh, Future's End. Future's End. Yeah, that, I had such high hopes. I really thought it was going to be epic. They really plugged it on UPN, like it was going to yeah. be this huge episode. They go back in time, and I was uh, pretty much let down by the episode. It, yeah, it wasn't as epic as they hyped it up to be. I mean, you had Bolana basically stuck in some farm guy's basement for the second half of the um, that two-part. But it introduced some concepts that would come back in Voyager, mm-hmm. like the 29th century and Braxton as mm-hmm. a character coming back and, and the time ship. So for that... I'm glad, and I'm glad that the Doctor got an emitter. Right. But I agree, how they hyped it up compared to what we got, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't the best. Right. And But I, I'm glad we got to see Voyager deal with time travel, too. Oh, I don't know. No! I feel like, <laughs> I feel like Voyager did too much time travel. They <laughs> did do more time travel than... I think any other show. Too many time travel episodes. I think maybe too many Borg episodes, too, but that's another story entirely. And right. uh, why don't we just move on? Because, I, right. like I said, I don't want to down on Voyager. This okay. is a happy occasion. 20 years. 20 years. That's, and I feel so old. Yeah, you are. So moving on. I was on. 12 when this came out. This is insane. Oh, my goodness. How old was I? This was... 12 uh, going on 13. This was 95 it came out. I was... Oh, wait. I'm only like a year younger than you, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I was like... I'm, I'm going to be... Th- I'm 32 right now. Right, and I'm 31. Yeah. Yeah, I was 12 then when this came out. Yeah, because in the summer I turned 13. The summer of 95, so yeah. Yeah. But, I know, crazy. It's it is. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, first on Google Plus, we have Vanessa Vasquez, who said, hmm, there were a few moments that resonated with me. Tuvok doing a jig for Neelix when Neelix left, the creation of Fairhaven, the entire episode of Resolutions, of course, Bolana struggling with the fact that her child would have forehead ridges, and everything associated with the board, including Seven of Nine. There were a lot of good moments on Voyager. Next, we have Colin Johnson, who said the Q Continuum Civil War, which led to the birth of Q Jr. and Aunt Kathy. The awesome powers of the Q were demonstrated as well as their vulnerability. And I'm glad that Voyager did give us more insight into the Q Continuum. That was a cool aspect. And it was cool seeing John Delancey back. No, it was, yeah, I like John Delancey, and I thought the 
maybe not the, this episode that they're referring to. But Death Wish. Death the, Wish. Death Wish was the one. Yeah, Death Wish. That was Wish. a fantastic one. Yeah, that's the one I liked. And, yeah, because it's like, holy crap, uh, why would a god basically want to commit suicide? Right. It, yeah, it was a fantastic episode. Highly recommended. Uh, Michael Orff said when it ended, <laughs> I'm re-watching it now, but it is by far the worst series. I'm going to have to disagree and moving on. Uh, Pal- <laughs> Shut up. Uh, Paolo uh, Mark said, yep, I agree also with Colin Johnson. Got to love the Q, a bit of Q continuums. Winky face. Uh, <laughs> Ted Bauer said January 16th, 1995. The premiere. The premiere. Daniel Price said, it has to be the Year of Hell two-parter. Such a great story. A fantastic episode, but it, aside from the Quenum and the later repercussions, it was basically just a big reset button. But it was great to see kind of like an alternate reality beat-up Voyager. I like that. That was cool. Jania Clam said, I adore the episodes Scorpion Part 1 and 2. Seven and Nine appeared for the first time, and the discussions between Captain Janeway and Chakotay were brilliant. And the episode Message in a Bottle was so funny and awesome. Voyager is one of my favorite series, uh, connected with a lot of beloved memories. Great sentiments. Fox Hound said definitely Scorpion Part 1 and 2 when Seven of Nine becomes part of the crew. I agree. So next from Facebook, we have Michael Murphy, who says one word, two Vicks. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And like we said, a good episode. Mm -hmm. Next we have Jonathan Yunker, who says my favorite moment of Voyager is when Doc says to EMH Mark II, stop breathing down my neck. EMH Mark II says, my breathing is merely a simulation. Then Doc says, and so is my neck. Now stop it. (laughs) Message in a bottle. And that episode, great episode. And funny moments like this. And there were some other funny moments. Oh, yeah. uh, Between the two doctors. (laughs) Like when the the other EMH went backwards into the Jeffreys tube, like, trying to figure out how to crawl. And the doctor just, like, rolls his eyes, like, uh, this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, I love that interaction, like, and just the delivery from Robert uh, Picardo, like, and so is my neck, but stop it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. This is awesome. Next, we have Michael A. Melome who says, I really enjoy the EMH 709 and their relationship. I still personally feel they were a better match than Chakotay, just my two cents. And he also included a picture of him dressed as the EMH. Yes, that's uh, it's, it's great. I was a little disappointed that they didn't hook up. They're, well, not hook up, but develop... <laughs> <laughs> but develop... Uh, uh, a, a relationship. They uh, they had a very deep friendship, but obviously the doctor wanted more from that. He really loved her. Mm-hmm. They had some really touching moments that I'm just sad that it towards the end that relationship went to Jakote. It was just such a ugh, 
Yeah. I hate it. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. Next, we have Caitlin Marie Walsh, who says, My favorite moment is disc three of season five, 30 days, counterpoint, and latent image are all in a row on that disc. Oh, yes. And that was 30 days was when uh, Tom Paris got demoted to Ensign. Oh, okay. Uh, next on Twitter, we have at the Cinema Slob. That is my co-host on the. That's Zach, my co-host on the Ranger okay. King Power Hour. Yes, and he is also a Star Trek fan. He said, "I remember really loving the Year of Hell two-parter. I'm a sucker for alternate timeline slash reality stuff. Mm. Great episode. Agreed." Josh Crash said. Probably the Doctor's Bluff of the Photonic Cannon in Tinker, Tenor, Doctor, Spy, which are another great Doctor episode. It was a good episode. And that was with the Emergency Command hologram. Right, and I, I've talked about this. I, I'm pretty sure I came up with the Emergency Command hologram before mm-hmm. Star Trek did. Right. But moving on. <laughs> Not like you're bitter, right? <laughs> <laughs> um... Vulcanophile said, when Janeway defeats the Borg Queen, or when LaForge captains the Galaxy-class starship in pursuit of Chakotay, and that is also in the episode Timeless. Hmm. So, you should watch Timeless. I I believe I remember it. Yeah. It was, I I remember seeing Geordi with the first contact uniform, but with the Futures, uh, sorry, not the Futures, and the uh, All Good Things communicator. Yes, and I'm glad they included that little touch. And yeah, another great TNG callback with mm-hmm. Jordy. Right. And uh, LeVar Byrne directed a bunch of Voyager episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so did, I think Jonathan Frakes directed a couple too. So they had some past people come back. And then we move on to Star Trek Riza. Which, if you uh, don't have an account, you should go check it out. StarTrekRiza.com. Yeah. And follow us on there. Follow us. Follow me. Follow me. Even though I don't go there a lot, but I should. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first, we have Richard Evans, who said, My favorite memory was when Q managed to flash in William Riker. That was great to see a past series past series cameo in the newer series. Agreed? I, I like that as well. Uh, John Peters said, love seeing the 8472 recreation of Starfleet Command in the Delta Quadrant. That was... Uh, I have issues with that 8472 development, mm-hmm. but it was kind of nice that they got a taste of home. Right. Andreas uh, Butcher Mack said... I'm a fan of Neelix's kitchen stories. Particularly remarkable, I find the scenes in the beginning when Neelix tests the bathtub and towards the end of the series when the crew passed him on leaving Voyager. Okay, the shrink doctor was not too bad. <laughs> I there, there was a moment when the doctor shrunk. Right. And he's yeah, very tiny. Someone please... Yeah, my Yeah, I, re- I remember that he was standing on the on the chair. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you funny. want to tackle this next one, or do you I want will. me to read it? Okay, I can, I can do it. 
So I'm next, trying to, I'm trying to spare your voice. <laughs> so next is an email submission by our friend Clive Burrell. And Clive says, the opening of Scorpion Part 1, the shortest teaser in Star Trek history featuring the Borg getting their asses kicked. Jaw-dropping, unexpected, magnificent. It sets us up for one hell of a two-parter, yep, and a season closer. Could say this nicely worked with the reveal of the Borg skeleton at the end of Blood Fever, and the rogue Borg in Unity. Next, we have Year of Hell. Watching Voyager take a bashing over and over again, gradually being worn down. Real shame they hit the reset switch, because in some ways this gradual... Uh, uh, deterioration. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm sick, by the way, people. I'm sick. <laughs> That's why I'm trying to save his voice. <laughs> um seemed a lot more realistic than the whole of the journey where it returned to Earth with Barely Scratch, which you uh, talked about earlier on. Yeah. I, like I said, uh, Voyager is the best engineers in Starfleet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next we have the, 30, the ship lands the first time in 37s. Wow. Great moment. Fable since fans saw the blueprints for the original Enterprise in those landing struct hatches. Great process, neat idea, and a nod to fans to finally see a ship land properly and in one piece. I guess he's referring to the saucer section of the Enterprise D crashing. Or when the uh, Enterprise crashed in the movies, the Enterprise... Uh, oh, the original Enterprise yeah. when it exploded. Yeah, yeah. that sucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that did. Um... I could check a whole lot more. Message in a bottle, Equinox, God, that was the greatest double episode. Death Wish, Living Witness, Hope and mm -hmm. Fear. You know, it wasn't that bad after all. There were a whole host of great episodes, too many to bore you with now. Yes, there are so many great episodes of Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're all listed right there, actually. I hey. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that uh, brings us to the end of our Star Trek Voyager discussion. Alright. And I'm just going to quickly jump into uh, the final part of the show. Uh, do you know what puts my quantum state into flux? We haven't had one of these in a while either. So you must be really pissed off. <laughs> you must be really fluxed. So, uh, thinking about 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 this episode, uh, sorry, not about this episode, but about this uh, series series, but it's just Star Trek in general. Okay, uh, is where I came up with this with this flux. Uh, so pulling double duty happens a lot in the Star Trek world. So I was thinking about Tom Paris becoming yeah. a nurse, but also a helm officer. But then I thought. More broadly, in the fact that we have security and tactical uh, um, as yeah. one uh, position in in Starfleet, we have the chief of security and the main tactical officer in right. one role in modern in the modern Star Trek, mm -hmm. and also um, it loops back to Enterprise as well, where we have Reed 
basically yep. the same role in that changes once the original Enterprise comes comes around. But what happens if your best weapons officer needs to step away from his console to escort a prisoner? What happens if the ship's suddenly attacked? Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you're on a away mission with your tactical officer, and then the ship becomes under attack? Your best man is away from the position, and that might be a life-or-death situation. It's true. Um, now, I'm not saying we you strip chief of security away from this position, mm-hmm. but there are security officers that could deal with going on away missions to uh, provide security uh, or to escort prisoners around the ship. You don't need to have your main chief doing these tasks. Yeah, uh, I, I can definitely see that. Was this more sparked by Tuvok doing that double role? Uh, it was more sparked by Worf. Oh. Well, oh yeah, that, yeah, that's another one. Because he was also tactical in uh, ship security. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty complicated. I uh, role-played in a Star Trek email simulation uh, mm-hmm. for years where my character was uh, chief of security and tactical. And there, we see it even in Star Trek. You do run into instances where ships under attack, but your guy's somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really understood why tactical and chief of security were combined. I, I know it deals, they both deal with security, but you know, one's internally and one's externally. Right. Uh, one could argue that not a lot happens internally if you're in a Federation starship because everyone's supposed to be good. Right. So that's why more of the focus goes on to the tactical position. So yeah, I can see that. I can also see that for a smaller ship like Voyager, where you almost need people to fill double duties, mm-hmm. either due to lack of personnel or the ship's so small they can do both of those duties effectively anyway. Right. For some reason, uh, this doesn't make sense to me either. Obviously, it's my my flux. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you would do it. I mean, especially on the Galaxy class starship, you have plenty of personnel. Oh my God! Yeah, it's like a city in space. Right. You have. You don't need one lives. person. You don't need one person doing all of that. Right. Especially chief of security, because I can see on a Galaxy class starship, since it is more like a city, you would have more maybe arguments or little altercations or bar fights if you're in 10 forward. Right, because on a Galaxy-class starship, you also have non-Starfleet people. Uh, You have families aboard. Yep, families, and you might have to settle uh, domestic disputes or... Mm, Wow, uh, that would have been an interesting thing to see on... uh, On Star Trek. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, it's just... Yeah, it's... I can see for a smaller ship that being okay, but you're right, for a huge ship like a Galaxy class, mm-hmm. that would be very difficult to do your job effectively because right. you have two jobs. Mm-hmm. And it, it was split up on Deep Space Nine. You have Chief of Security Odo, but right. weapons and stuff, that was done by Starfleet personnel yeah. on, on the ship, so uh, on the station, rather. 
So, yeah. It should be separate. Next series should make them separate. <laughs> make them separate. And, and again, like, like I said, um, I think it makes sense for Enterprise, too, because I think Reed could handle it, because 90% of his job is, is tactical. There's very few instances where he has to, you know, patrol security on the ship or, or whatever. But still, your point about, you know, being away on a away mission and your ship being attacked, that's happened before when Reed was on a planet. And... Yeah, especially in the early Starfleet, where the yeah. senior officer, the commanding officer, would routinely go on away missions. Crazy. Right, like, hey, I'm putting myself in danger all the time. Yeah, I <laughs> guess I would want my my best person with me, and I would pull him away from the ship, I guess. But, but, but we saw it in Enterprise, where Captain Archer is on the planet, T'Pol's in charge, but he's got Reed with him, so she's working with some random tactical officer number three. Right. And, <laughs> and they get into trouble. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm also fluxed. Yeah, well, I'm. I guess I'm. I'm not glad I put you into flux, <laughs> but I'm glad that you agree. It's an interesting. It's, it's an interesting position to consider. Indeed. Okay. Well, again, Eric, thank you uh, for. Thank you. <laughs> being here with me today to talk about Star Trek Voyager, I wouldn't have made it through without you. Uh, <laughs> I'm the Voyager glue that holds this ship together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm the only one in this damn podcast who loves it as much as I do. Uh, um, well, I, I don't know. Let's think about a Star Trek Voyager topic that we can do for our next episode. We don't have to. You don't have to force it. No, no. I mean, <laughs> if, if I'm going to go through a re rewatch of Star Trek right. Voyager... I think maybe we should come up with a reason for this rewatch. Hey, maybe this could be the year of more Voyager focus episodes for the Starfleet Escape podcast, celebrating the 20th anniversary. Indeed. Indeed, it's uh, definitely time uh, because there was definitely a lack of it in our <laughs> previous episodes. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah. Uh, until right. next time, I'm Aaron. And I'm Eric. Thanks for listening. Catch you guys later. To the journey. To the journey. As they say on Voyager. Indeed. You have been listening to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, where you can catch a new episode every other Monday. You can find us on the web at sfescapepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at sfescapepod like us on facebook.com slash sfescapepod and add us to your circle on Google Plus by going to google.sfescapepod.com This has been another great presentation by the Fouride Radio Network. You can find more information at fouriderradio.com.